0: We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated.
1: Well, we just got past October, which means that uh, my favorite holiday uh, just came past. And for all of you who are thinking that's Halloween, it's not. It's uh, Reformation Day, right? October 31st. And so we got, to, uh, we got to talk about the 95 Theses with some of my friends, and one, one of the things that you find in 95 Theses is point number one, the most important point that Martin Luther wants us to understand, is that when Jesus spoke about repentance, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Do you hear that? When he spoke of repentance, he wanted the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In this, Luther was saying that we are not God's people based on how religious we are, how many good things we can do, or how legalistically disciplined we are. Instead, one crucial evidence that someone belongs to the people of God is how readily he or she repents from sin and turns to God. The same truth is given us to us today in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, as Matthew introduces us to John the Baptist and gives us a glimpse into his early interactions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In his work, his message, and his warning to the Pharisees, John shows us that the proper response to God's kingdom and the kingdom's arrival in Christ is to repent of sin. That's just the natural outworking of the kingdom dawning on earth. And it is based on this repentance that determines whether a person is delivered or damned. If they repent, then they are delivered. If they don't repent, they are judged and they stand under the wrath of God himself. Now the greater context of Matthew's gospel is to display Jesus as the promised Christ, the Messiah. The son of David who... Is to be given an eternal, everlasting, global dominion by God Himself over all nations. He's the Psalm 2 king that God Himself has enthroned upon uh, the throne of Zion. And and He traces it all the way back, beginning in Matthew 1, back to the genealogy of Abraham, traces His lineage through David, all the way to the end of the exile. Uh, In this chapter, in chapter 1, we, we are told of Jesus' miraculous birth. Uh, Born of a virgin uh, by the Holy Spirit, that he had no biological father, but instead was born of God's Spirit himself. And Matthew 2, we're told of Herod's brutality and of the hostility toward the Messiah. And Matthew gives us in this a preview of the hostility to number one, echo. What was true of Genesis 3.15, when the offspring of the serpent would be hostile toward the offspring of the woman, and to foreshadow the kind of rejection Jesus would experience in his lifetime, and that would continue through the rest of this narrative. Now Matthew 3 transitions. We're coming out of all that introductory material into the actual life and ministry of Christ, and it serves as a transition by telling us about the forerunner of Christ, the one who came before Jesus. He wants us to understand who Jesus is first by understanding who came before him, namely John the Baptist, and what place he held in redemptive history. Now, I think for us as Christians, you know, we tend to skip over John the Baptist real easily, right? We forget about him. He's just one of those guys that we know was there. We appreciate him. Some of us have a little bit of a of uh, uh, what do you call it? Prejudice against Baptists, and so we don't really we don't really give too much attention to the Baptist, right? And so and so we tend to just skip over him, skip straight to Jesus, right? Uh, but it seems to me that John the Baptist holds a crucial crucial role in the history of the kingdom coming on earth. God God Himself has sent John the Baptist ahead of Jesus. Jesus speaks of him of being honored, of him being one of the greatest born among men. He says as much. In verse 11 of chapter 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That being so, it seems important not to skip over him, not to make him unimportant, but to actually hear his words, to hear his message, to understand his role, to see how his life and his work and his ministry tie into the life of our Savior and tie into the ministry of Christ the King. And so today we're going to consider four aspects of John that are presented in the first six verses of this chapter. We're going to consider John's place, John's person, John's place, his message, and his work. We're going to consider who he is, where he is, what he said, and what role he played in the coming of Christ. So let's begin with his person. Matthew 3.1 says this, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, up to this point, there's no reason for us to know much about this man. If you've been reading Matthew fresh, with new eyes, there's no reason that you should know who this is. And so, we're trying to piece together at this point, okay, well, in those days, John the Baptist, who's he? What, what, what is he here to do? Why is it important that Matthew points to him at this point? And Matthew begins by telling us that this man is a preacher or a proclaimer of repentance. But how does a preacher of repentance fit into the big story of Jesus? Verse 4 gives us a hint. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, to me, I'm, I'm one of those guys that I want to know what in the world is, is Matthew telling me what John wore, right? Right? why the detail of what John the Baptist was wearing out in the desert? Is it important that he was wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt? And would it have been different if he was wearing Prada out in the wilderness? Or walking around uh, with the best you know, Nike sneakers in the wilderness to just do his marathon jogs out in the desert? Would it have been different if he wore something else? Well, here's what Matthew wants us to see. This John the Baptist, we have seen before in another form. We have, we have heard this man's message before in the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to Second Kings eight, you hear of another prophet named Elijah, who wore a garment, a word-for-word description, wore a garment of cam- camel's hair, and about his waist was a leather belt. So immediately, Matthew wants us to understand that this John the Baptist on the scene is a type of new Elijah. He's a new prophet. And just like Elijah came to call Israel back to God and to turn their hearts away from Baal, the idol, to turn their hearts away from idolatry, that John in the same way has come to call God's people away from all the other gods that they're worshiping, away from the other idols, and to turn to God himself, to repent, to stop limping around between two opinions, in the words of Elijah. Now, after Elijah left the scene, there was a prophecy that came in Micah 4, 5, which says that a new restoration is coming. A new exodus would be on the way. Exile from God would be over. And here's what God says, marking out when that restoration would be initiated. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, in other words, all the prophets see Things happening again. A new Exodus, a new Moses coming, a new Elijah coming. And on the heels of those people coming is the Lord himself coming to meet with his people. On the heels of this new Elijah comes Yahweh himself to restore his people. And so immediately, right off the bat, with the description of what he's wearing and the description of what he's doing... Matthew wants us to understand that this is a man who's come in the same type of work, the same type of person as Elijah, to bring our hearts back to God. Now, what about his place? Is it important? His place comes as a bit of a surprise. One would think that a prophet of such a caliber as John the Baptist, another Elijah, you'd expect to find that dude in the center of Jerusalem, right? maybe at the gates of the temple, somewhere important. I wouldn't expect him out in the wilderness. Why in the world... Would, like, like, like take, take John Piper, or, or, or take one of these big known preachers. Resurrect Billy Graham, for example. example and, and you're not going to place him in Ovilla, Texas, right? You want that dude in Washington, D.C. So, so why in the world would this Elijah, this new kind of Elijah preaching repentance, show up in the middle of the wilderness? Well, here's why. Again, it begins to indicate what God is doing through Christ. A new exodus has come. It's beginning to dawn. The wilderness theme permeates scripture. And namely, it's in the wilderness that God chooses to meet with his people. It's in the wilderness that God draws His people back to Himself. In Hosea two fourteen, for example, when Israel is the unfaithful bride running away from running away from their God, Yahweh says, "I will allure them back to the wilderness, and she will love me again." In Isaiah forty verse two, speaks of this voice going out into the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, because that is where God will meet with His people. God will draw them back out to a new type of wilderness. God will provide for them again. God will win back their affections. God will win back their love. God will bring them back to repentance. And forevermore, they will be in a relationship with God. And then the prophets speak of the wilderness becoming a new type of Edenic garden. That it begins to bloom again. So all these indicators already telling us this is not just something unimportant. This is something beyond precedent in redemptive history. God has sent a forerunner like Elijah into the wilderness where God himself will meet with his people. So that's just half of what John the Baptist stands for. But then we get to his message. His message is pretty clear. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the word repent means to change one's mind, to change action, to change a course of direction in life. Why the need for change, though? Why does he call them to change the way they live, to change the way they think? Well, his answer is given right there in his proclamation. Because the kingdom of heaven has come. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. It's almost as if John understands that the natural outworking of God's holy kingdom is Coming down on earth is us coming to realize and acknowledge our sin and our need for repentance. When holy God and sinful man come together, the natural outcome is that we must repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is not new. Again, we can go all the way back to the prophets, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne. He sees the king. He sees an illustration of the kingdom. And what's his first response? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My friends, when the kingdom of heaven invades on earth, when the kingdom of heaven plants itself, as John the Baptist says that it has done, when the kingdom of heaven has come, the most appropriate response is to turn from sin, to turn from idolatrous competitors to turn back to God, to turn back to our affections. That's the most natural thing for people to do. The crowds were coming to him from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from the whole region around the Jordan River to come and be baptized by him, to, see, to, to represent their desire to repent, to represent their desire to be in this kingdom and to turn from their sin and to turn back to God. This is exactly what should be happening if the kingdom of God has indeed dawned on earth. Now what about, what about his work? So we've talked about his person. We've talked about the place. And we've talked about his, his message. But what about his work? Now all four of these are going to come back together to tie in a big picture theme of who John the Baptist is. And what he has to do with you and I. So let's deal with this fourth component and then piece it all back together. Fourth component is his work. Matthew views John as the fulfillment of Isaiah 40's prophecy. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now if you go back to the text that he's quoting in Isaiah 40, its original context talks about God himself. This is our God that is coming. Make, prepare the way of our God, make his path straight. So this isn't just some man that we call Lord. This is God himself coming to his people. And this voice serves as a preparation for that. He calls them out saying, the Lord is coming, prepare, prepare, make straight his path." which in, in, in Hebrew is an idiom of be upright, be righteous. It's a call back to repentance and a call back to be righteous. The Lord is coming, Prepare yourselves. The Lord is coming. Cleanse yourselves of sin. The Lord is coming. Seek righteousness. That's essentially what this voice is doing in the wilderness. And so we see him as a a preparation of what's to come. A preparation of the Lord himself coming. So, those are our four components. New Elijah, crying out in the wilderness, calling people to repent because the kingdom has come in order to prepare them for God himself. Why would Matthew tell us about this? Why would he give us those four components? In in the big picture scheme, what does that have to do with us? Here's what I think. Matthew clearly wants us, his readers, to understand the king and the kingdom's emergence into the world mandates... Our hatred of sin mandates that we would leave sin, not toy with it, not play with it, not flirt with it, not share in it, but it mandates a natural response that if the king has come and if his kingdom has been established on earth, then the most natural and appropriate thing for us to do is to hate our own rebellion, to hate the very thing that seeks to thwart the kingdom of God to hate the thing that seeks to do opposition and to do aggression and hostility to the king and creator. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, okay, if this is the natural response to the kingdom's coming, if repentance and a hatred of sin and 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 to look in my own life and to, and to think about all my, my gossip and my corruption and my lust and my pride and my hard-heartedness, to look at my own heart and to say, ugh. The kingdom's come. I must turn from that. To to have a growing affection for God and for what's to come in his king. That is a natural response. So my question then to myself and to us is, have we appropriately responded to the kingdom's outbreaking? Have we appropriately responded to the kingdom's outbreaking? It's crucial. If Matthew wants us to see that One plus one equals two. The kingdom's coming and the fact of our sinfulness means that we must repent of sin. If he wants us to see that, then have we appropriated that rightly? Have we seen ourselves as sinners? Have we seen God as holy? Have we seen his kingdom as lovely? And are we turning away from everything that has separated us from the king and the kingdom? Have we naturally, appropriately responded in the way God's kingdom outbreak has demanded? Or do we, like everyone, have our own little pet sinful affections? I mean, don't aren't you like me? I mean, I, I have my own little pet sins. I don't like to talk about. We can grow sins in petri dishes, right? We're like we're like hoarders when it comes to sins. We just we don't want to quite throw it away. We're, we don't want it to take over everything, but we also aren't willing to just throw it out, right? It, it's like we don't, we don't want to be labeled, you know, people who who are addicted to their sin. But at the same time, we just. We store them away, we hide them on our computers, we put them underneath our beds, we store them in the closet, we put them in the recesses of our minds, and we just kind of let them stay there, store them away. You never know if I might need it again. But the gospel of the kingdom is that if you truly understand that the kingdom has dawned on the world, that, that the king has come, the most natural response is not to hoard those pet little sins and those addictions and those idolatries and those affections, not to store idols in storage units to be brought out later. The most appropriate response is to toss them, to throw them, to leave them, to destroy them, to crush them. My greatest fear for the American church, my greatest fear for myself, is that I would get to a point that I would harbor secret love for secret sins. Or that I would begin to presume upon God's grace to such an extent that He'll be okay with me having these pet sins. Or that I would begin to think that sin's not that big of a deal. John the Baptist comes as a force, as a rock against water and says, repent. Why? Because not so that the kingdom will come. Not if you repent, then the kingdom will come. No, it is repent because the kingdom has come. Our sin doesn't stop God's kingdom. And here we are. We've got the kingdom coming and sinful hearts. And they're in a collision course. And we're given one option. Turn away or be crushed. That is the hard gospel our American ears can't seem to tolerate most of the time. We want a kingdom that tolerates us. We want a kingdom that doesn't push us over. We want a kingdom that doesn't crush. We want a pillow, not a rock. But the kingdom of God demands, it makes the demand A new king has come. He is not you. You are not he. Your ways are not his ways. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come. That's a hard thing for me to hear so often. But yet that's the message exactly that John wants us to hear. If we really truly do believe that the kingdom has come in Christ, then daily, moment by moment, increasingly our rebellion against him will begin to fade and our love for him will turn to eternity. Our hearts will turn to see his face. Our desires and our affections will turn away from self-pleasure and self-gratification and self-exaltation that will begin to turn toward him for such a force because we believe the kingdom has come in him. Now, in case anyone thinks that this kind of repentance is optional, Matthew goes ahead and, and throws in a story about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wants us to understand that it is not whether you're doing this kind of repentance or not. It's not really optional here. It really is the mark of whether you're in the people of God or not. To have this kind of repentance is the mark, the difference between people of God and people who are not people of God. Look in verses seven through ten, he says this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. That's I wouldn't have the guts to tell that to church members, but he says it to Pharisees, so to each his own. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, "We have Abraham as our Father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones uh, to raise up children of Abraham. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees you have to know who they are they 're their religious elite. Of Jerusalem, their righteous works outdo yours and I's uh, righteous works. Their church attendance is far better than yours, their tithing, far better than yours, their cleanliness, far better than yours. They not only wash before they go into the temple, they wash before every meal, and they wash behind their ears. Okay, these guys are the spotless clean, they seem they're whitewashed when you see them. These are the people that surely, if anyone doesn't need to repent, it's they. These are powerful people. They have daily influence in the outworkings of Judea life. And yet John remains undeterred by who he's speaking to. All need to come to repentance. Even the supposed religious elite. John goes so far to call these Pharisees a brood of vipers. Why a brood of vipers? What is John saying when he calls these Pharisees a brood of vipers? Brood of vipers can be translated as offspring of serpents. Does that sound familiar? It should call our minds back to Genesis 3.15 when there's an offspring of the woman and an offspring of the serpent. And the offspring of the serpent are all those who are opposed to God and in rebellion against him. And the offspring of the woman are all who trust in him and who obey him and follow him. There's enmity between these, kind of, these two people groups. So by making this connection... He sees the unrepentant Pharisees. Now, now, just try to wrap your brain around this. The religious elite, the Jewish religious elite, who they themselves can walk the stones of the temple. He says, even with their proximity to God himself, even with their great religiosity, they are offspring of the serpent. What? How is that? Matthew wants us to understand that being people of God isn't based on how religious you are. It's not based on your status. It's not based on your biological descent. That's what John tells them. The fact that they're Jewish elite has nothing to do with the fact that they need to repent. The fact that they are in proximity to the temple and that they do all these great religious things has nothing to do with the fact they need to repent Pharisees and Sadducees cannot presume upon biological descent to be called children of Abraham, the people of God. So the question then is, how can they find sufficient evidence to say that they are indeed people of God? If their biology doesn't matter, if their religiosity doesn't matter, if their social status doesn't matter, then how can they find find confidence? How can they find affirmation that they do indeed belong to the people of Abraham, the blessed ones, the ones that belong to God himself? Well, the answer is found in John's imperative. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you hear what he's telling them? It's point's simple. Even with all the great things that they have in their life, they're not people of God just because of those things. They're people of God if they repent. They're people of God if they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus himself said the same thing to them. This must have been a rerun from their nightmares, right? So they hear John the Baptist at the front end of Jesus' ministry calling them brood of vipers and telling them to repent. And then later in Matthew 12, Jesus repeats the very same word, says it again to them. He says this in verses 33 through 37, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, you offspring of serpents, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasures brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasures, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now notice that they both, John the Baptist and Jesus, approached the Pharisees in the same way. In Jesus' eyes, the Pharisees' rejection of him and their refusal to repent means that they have aligned themselves with the serpent, with Satan himself. Also, like John, Jesus calls the Pharisees to real repentance. Not just just works, right? He doesn't just tell them to go about doing good things. They're already doing that. He calls them to real repentance. John says, bear fruit in keeping with. That is bear fruit that comes out of, that is sourced in repentance. In the same way, Jesus elaborates even further as he takes the matter to the heart. Listening carefully to both of their their statements, which I think is the same message to the Pharisees, I think we can begin to build our understanding of what it means to repent. According to John, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance implies that repentance comes first. I mean, what comes first, the tree or the fruit? It's the tree, right? The seed is grown into a tree, and then the tree... After some time, bears fruit. So bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he's essentially asking them first, repent and then go and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Jesus takes it one step further with the analogy of the tree. He says they can't bear fruit. They can't bear good fruit because the tree is bad. And in Jesus' analogy, the tree is an illustration of the heart. If the heart is bad, the works are bad. If the heart is bad, the works cannot be fruit in keeping with repentance. In order for it to be fruit in keeping with repentance, the heart must be repentant. The heart must repent. It's not just a matter of regretting what we've done. It's not just a matter of cleaning up our actions. It's not just a matter of doing the right things. It's not this Star Wars game of balancing out the force. Commit sin on Friday, tithe more on Sunday, balance it out, right? That's not the scripture's description of repentance. If our heart is not in a right relationship with God, then our works will not be in keeping with repentance. It comes back down to the heart. Repentance means that you have a heart that is always re-evaluating your relationship with the Lord. A heart that is always desiring to rekindle and kindle more and to make the fire spread for affection for God. To kill competing affections. To kill the things that that are, are keeping your fire watered down. And this way repentance can be understood... As the hearts turn from sin, the hearts turn from that which looks rebelliously lovely here, to turn to an even more lovely God, to an even better God. It's a change of direction in what we love. John's message and work as a proclaimer of repentance is based upon his knowledge of an impending judgment. He spoke of it in verse 7 when he asked the Pharisees, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, John the Baptist, if we were back then with our modern eyes, this is the dude on New York street corner wearing nothing but skibbies and wearing a cardboard box over him, right? Flee from the wrath to come. That's what most of us think of when we speak of an impending judgment. We're We're not too fond of that kind of message. And yet, John states it as it's an undeniable fact that there is a judgment coming. And not not only is it coming, it's not that far off. There's an urgency. There's an urgency to repent because there is one who is coming who will bring the judgment of God with him. Beginning in verse 10, he says this, "...even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with an unquenchable fire. Now he explains what the coming judgment's like using three images, three metaphors. An axe at the root of the trees, a baptism of spirit and of fire, and a winnowing fork uh, that sifts through the wheat and the chaff. And with each one, John's urgency is made absolutely clear. Um, when we first moved to my uh, hometown, Stigler, Oklahoma, we lived out in the country. There were woods everywhere. And you could always determine what Papa wanted you to do for the day based on what tool he had laying at the bottom of the trees. Okay? Sometimes there'd be trimmers, sometimes they would be axes. Sometimes they'd be chainsaws, sometimes they'd be chains. I still don't really know what he intended to do with the chains. And if you refused to do it, the next day you'd wake up and there'd be a switch, and you all know what that tool means, okay? So whenever we'd walk out, we'd see these tools laying at the bottom of the tree, and we knew exactly what we were going to do for the day. Well, John says the same thing. Look, there's an axe laying at the root of the tree. And he expects him to understand that even now... The work is ready to begin. Even now, judgment's ready to come. All it's waiting for is for the divine judge himself to come and to pick up the axe and go to work. Everything's in place. It's all ready. It's just waiting for that one to come, to take up the axe, and to start cutting down all the bad trees and to burn them. Second illustration is that of baptism. That, uh, the word baptism simply means immersion, right? So we, we, uh, baptism is actually our English version of a Greek word. So it means to immerse. John says, I immerse you with or in water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, who, who, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, according to John, John describes his his ministry as a precursor of what's to come. People are being baptized, and there's a baptism coming. And when the one mightier than him comes, he's going to baptize them with an even better immersion. Either they will be baptized in the Spirit, immersed in the Spirit, as as a sign and symbol that they have been completely restored to a relationship with God. I mean, this is restoration, reconciliation at its finest. It's not just that this mightier one brings us back to the Holy Spirit or brings us to be with the Holy Spirit, but he immerses us in the Holy Spirit, which means that there is a full and final reconciliation with God, that grace has been given, that a relationship has been restored, or he immerses in fire. Almost every single time in Scripture, fire is a symbol of judgment to come It's the burning presence of God. What happens when you put a dry twig in the presence of a hot fire? It burns up. It burns up and in my very simple way of, of of thinking, you know talking with grandfathers and whatnot. <laughs> my uh, my grandfather would explain this text as saying, "Wet sticks don't burn. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're not going to burn in 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 standing on your own dry kin- unkindled self. You are going to burn in the fires of judgment. That's what John's saying. There's two baptism, two ways in the road. Either you're brought back to reconciliation with God, restoration in His presence, and you are able to dwell with Him, much like the bush." that doesn't burn in Exodus chapter 4, or you burn. That's a hard message to preach to modern context. We tend to hate the Turner burn stuff. I think we've overreacted to preachers who have preached it in the wrong way in the past. This isn't scare tactics. This is just truth. The reality is, is that there is one coming And the grace of it all and the mercy of it all and the beauty of it all is that he has come to restore our relationship with God. That's the part of the message the old turn and burn preachers missed. But that's the good news of it. That's what makes it good news is he has come to immerse us into a relationship with God. But if we reject that, the result is to stand on our own two feet and to receive God's wrath on our own, which we cannot do, we will die. Now the third image is that of a winnowing fork. A winnowing fork, if you don't know what it is, it's used in the, uh, on threshing floors to kind of sift through wheat and chaff. So all the stuff that's useless and that it can't be eaten, it's, it's no good... He throws into one pile, and all the wheat he gathers up into another pile. And so again, we have this understanding that there's a judgment coming that's going to divide right down the middle those who respond in repentance and those who don't. The chaff from the wheat, and the chaff will be burnt. Wheat will be gathered into the barn. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with this understanding that repentance is such a huge thing in the life of a believer? Well, I think we do a little bit more than just kind of shirk it off like it's just another doomsday message. And, you know, John the Baptist being some crazy New York Street corner prophet, you know, telling us that doomsday has come and repent. I think, I think we should see it instead for what it actually is. If the kingdom has come, it doesn't want things to stay the same. If you throw a massive boulder into a little pond, guess what? The pond's not going to look the same. If they're a mountain into a lake, the lake's not going to look the same. Things are going to shift. Things are going to move. Water's going to be displaced. Well, in an even greater sense, this massive comment of the kingdom of heaven has come into our world and it doesn't leave things the same. It starts out as a seed and it grows and it pushes sin out. And the king reigns on his throne. So I think that's very simply what we should understand is that God is a holy God. He's brought his holy kingdom so that life on earth will look like what it is in heaven, that all things will obey him, that all things live in his holy presence, and that there's a judgment coming for all that doesn't fit into that kingdom's holiness. We shouldn't be surprised by that. God must be a just God, or he is not a good God. How Horrible would it be to live in a land full of judges that don't judge crime. How horrible would it be to in a place that every single crime, no matter how bad it is, that the judge simply sweeps over it and pretends it didn't happen. God must judge sin to be a good God, to be a even a loving God. He must judge sin. I am not a loving father if I let my son punch sissy in the face over and over and over again and don't do anything about it. God is a good God. He's a loving God. He's a good Father, which naturally means He is just. Judgment is coming. It is the natural outworking of God. If God is the greatest good we have ever known, sin is the greatest bad we could ever do. And so we must expect infinite consequences for doing the greatest bad against the greatest good. It's just logical. Some people want to do away with judgment and justice because they want to make God better. But in reality, what they're doing is they're making him worse. Judgment makes sense if God is the most pure, most loving, most good being there has ever been. Because if he's the most good, the most loving, the most holy, the most noble, the most dignified. If he's the best diamond this, this, this universe has ever known. Then how amazingly horrible is it to throw that diamond down the toilet? To throw it away like it's trash? To try to shatter it? To spit on it? If we saw anyone doing that, we would naturally say, you don't know what you're doing. And there would probably be infinite consequences from throwing away an infinite diamond like that. My friends, we've done the same thing. We've taken an infinitely good God. We've spat upon his infinitely amazing name. And so we must understand that judgment comes. Now, here's the good news the same God who is a righteous God and a holy God and who brings judgment has offered a lamb. The judge himself has come and before picking up the axe, he himself takes the knife. Before he begins to wield and cut, he allows himself to be bruised and nailed to the tree. Have you ever thought about that? When justice and judgment of God came at the coming of the kingdom of heaven, who received it first? The one who brought the kingdom. It fell on him squarely. Every hammer. Every nail in the wrist and in the feet. Every lash mark against his back. Proving the fact that God is a just God. And that sin brings death. And something or someone must die. In order for us to have a relationship with God. And God in flesh died on the cross, bearing our sin. He was buried and then he rose again to show that he had effectually worked and there is no, there's now no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus. Now what? Well, the most appropriate thing to do with that news, I think, is to turn to him and to repent. Now, I'm not just talking about once in, in a lifetime I'm talking about daily. If the Pharisees and Sadducees' religious elitism, if their influence, their biological descent, could not define them as the people of God, didn't show them to appropriately understand what God has done, how much less does your tithing, the color of your shirt at a political rally, your church attendance, or your religiosity, declare you to be a child of God? None of those things can. The only proper evidence that you belong to the line of Abraham to the to the seed of the woman the ones who are blessed restored back into a relationship with God those who are justified in the kingdom of heaven before the presence of God is that you have repented that you hate your own sin not just sin I'm not just talking about other people's sin you hate your own sin and you love Jesus as your own savior And because of that, you turn and you repent. It's the daily rhythm of your life. You realize daily we have competitors in our thoughts and our desires and our actions that live contrary to the king and the kingdom. So I think it's worth asking daily, what things are present in my life that is competing for my affection and my devotion? In what way can I repent and continue to find affirmation that I for sure am the in the in the the children of Abraham that I have been justified, what kind of evidence is shown through that? Well, the normal occurrence of our life should be one that repents daily, when we sin against people, when we offend others, how quick are we to repent? you know we we talk about successful. Parenthood here. What makes a successful parent? Not that you're able to convince your children that you don't do anything wrong, but in the way that you repent when you sin. Successful parenthood is teaching children daily how you repent by model, by illustration. I can't tell you how many times I've been on one knee, eye level, with a three year old asking for forgiveness for the way that I have spoken. Repent. That's the message of the kingdom. Repent and live daily in that repentance to continually turn in the way that we gossip against others and the way that we hurt others others in the way that we seek self-exaltation and pride to say, no longer my kingdom, but your kingdom, not my throne, but your throne, not my words, but your words, not my heart and my heart's agenda, but your heart, not for my pleasure, but for your honor and glory. Because to the king of the ages, the immortal, the, immortal, the invisible, only wise God belongs glory forever and ever. That's the life of a believer. I'm less concerned when I see sin in my life and I'm more concerned when I don't. Does that make sense? We should be less concerned when we we, we, we should be less concerned when we are able to recognize sin. That's good. To be able to recognize of it and to turn from it. The danger is when we don't see it. The reality of being a mature child of Abraham is that you assume it's there and that daily you must turn. I'm not talking about salvation, right? There is a repentance at salvation. We're saved once and it's effective. But in our daily life, we continue to work out that repentance. In our daily life, we continue to consider the sins that are competing for us, the things that are keeping us back from God and we are quick to repent. That's the natural outworking of it. If I've repented and God has saved and I am now justified, then it makes sense that if I offend my wife or if I do something against my kids or I I hurt someone else and gossip, that my most natural response is, that is inconsistent with what's happened in my life. Inconsistent with the fact that God and Jesus is king. John's been dead for two millennia. And yet he still calls us to repentance. That's why he's important. My friends, I don't know what sins you have. I don't know what you have to repent of. I can tell you we all have things to repent of. It's not something, like I said, it's not just for Pharisees. It's not just for prostitutes and the Pharisees are exempt. No, the message of repentance goes both to prostitutes and Pharisees. The message of repentance goes to the religious elite and the pagan. Those who are near and those who are far off. My friends, to be consistent with the Gospel of Matthew in the proclamation that Jesus as king reigns on the throne and that his kingdom has dawned because of Jesus. I call us all to repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for this message, Father. As hard as it is a pill to swallow the fact that you are a just and holy God and that you do judge sin, we lay our hearts bare before you and we ask, Father, that you will continue to break our hearts away from sin, that you will turn our affections back to you, and that, God, you will help us to love Jesus better today than we did yesterday. God, if anyone here wants to repent, wants to pray to repent, God, I pray that you'll help us to have wisdom, to speak the gospel clearly, and that, Father, even those who are Christians, Father, will consider in what ways in their life have they turned to things with a greater affection than with you. Father, we love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.